Well, good morning, church. It's so good to share God's word with you this morning. If you would, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. If you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath the seat that you're sitting in. There should be a blue Bible there. I would encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 952. Uh, 952 and as always the words of God the scripture will be on the screens uh, behind me <clears throat> we are going to continue our series uh, through uh, this Christmas season called Advent uh, the word Advent uh, really describes an, an, an anticipation or arrival of something or someone and we know uh, according to uh, the gospel that this Advent season is really all about uh, Jesus Christ God's one and only son and if you uh, were here last week, and even if you weren't able to be here last week or uh, not to be able to see the, uh, catch the sermon on our webpage, <clears throat> last week we looked at Romans uh, 15, Romans 15, specifically verses 8 through 13, and really it helps set the stage for the purpose of Christmas. Uh, so often we see Christmas through the, lies, through the lens of man, right? Like we see Christmas as about us. It's about receiving uh, something that someone has given to us. Oftentimes we're more fo- uh, fixated on uh, the human realm, and we forget, uh, really, at the end of the day, Christmas is all about the glory of God. It's all about him. And what we find in Romans 15, even though the immediate context of that passage is dealing with the potential of conflict within uh, the church between uh, those who have come to faith from a Gentile background and those who came to faith in Christ from a Jewish background, uh, Paul uh, uses that opportunity to really talk about the work that God has done. And what we find in Romans chapter 15, uh, verses 8 through 13, is that when Jesus came into the world, he is reminding us that God is faithful, that he keeps his promises. And what we learned last week is when you chase, uh, trace the hand of God, the promises of God, all the way back in the Old Testament uh, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob specifically, and carry it all the way through into the New Testament, guess what? God is faithful. When God makes a promise, he's going to keep his promise. And how do we know? He sent Jesus Christ into the world. But not only that, God is after his glory. In other words, there is none like him. There is none uh, like God and God deserves all praise and worship, but not just from the Jewish perspective. But God deserves glory and honor from all nations, all people, all tribes, all tongues. And and God's mission goes to the Gentiles. You and I would be a part of that Gentile uh, demographic. That those who did not grow up in Jewish ancestry. Uh, God's glory has been shown to us. And how has God done it? Well, according to Romans 15, he has done it by showing his mercy, his mercy. That though the Gentiles were not a part of God's covenant people in the Old Testament, in Christ and only in Christ can we be a part of the covenants that were given to God's people in the Old Testament. And even more so, we are part of the new covenant where Jesus Christ, his shed blood on the cross, has declared once and for all that it is finished. That there's absolutely nothing we can do uh, that needs to be done in order to be right with God. It comes through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that, that wall of hostility that was once there between us and God has been removed. And not only that, that wall of hostility that used to be between uh, the Jews and the Gentiles now has been removed because of the work of Christ. And not only that, Jesus comes to give hope. Hope. So much so that Paul says in Romans uh, 15, verse uh, 13, that he, he comes to give us uh, abounding hope, overflowing hope. Hope in the midst of all things so that we can have, we can experience all joy and that we can have peace. And so when we think about Christmas, when we think about Advent, first and foremost, we start from God's perspective. That everything about the Christmas story points us to him 
primarily the finished work of Christ. But it's on that that we begin to ask the question. If, if Jesus coming to the world brings hope, how does he bring hope? Or better yet, maybe the question is, to whom does he bring hope to? And we find ourselves this morning in Luke chapter 4. Now, to set the stage to Luke chapter 4 for just a moment, uh, this would have been very early on in Jesus' uh, earthly ministry. Uh, the, Luke, who wrote this account, uh, is, a, is a Gentile. So that's a, that's a, that's a big uh, thing to know, that he was not part of uh, that, that Jewish lineage, if you will, that Jew, Jewish ancestry, but he comes to faith in Christ. Uh, he's a physician, so he's a doctor. So he has different details that he writes about. You know, when you go to a doctor, you want, you want more details than oftentimes you get sometimes, right? Uh, well, Luke gives us details in his account uh, that other gospel writers don't give. And so we, we see a little bit of flavor, a little personality from the physician Luke. Uh, the other thing that's interesting, interesting is Luke is not an eyewitness of the work of Jesus. He, he's getting this from uh, another source, right? But it's a reliable source because all of those things hold into account through the other gospel writers as well. Uh, but what's amazing about <coughs> Luke's perspective uh, when he writes down the things that have been given to him is, is Luke begins to unpack for us some, this amazing event that happens in Luke 4. Now, up until this point, uh, Jesus had been, uh, has been baptized uh, by John the Baptist. Uh, right after his baptism, uh, God says, this is my son who I'm well pleased, which is a massive statement, right? That, that there teaches us about our identity in Christ. If God is pleased with his son, then you and I, as we stand in Christ, guess what? He is pleased with you and I, right? So you want to talk about the pleasure of God? How is God pleased with you? First and foremost, if you stand in Christ, God is pleased with you, right? But it's immediately after that that Jesus is uh, led into the wilderness uh, by the Holy Spirit, which is key, uh, where he is uh, there for 40 days and 40 nights. He's, he's experiencing temptation uh, from Satan, and Satan's temptation towards uh, Jesus is to, is to contradict what God had already declared over him, that, you, that this is my son who I'm well pleased. And the beauty of this is, is Jesus does what Adam and Eve couldn't do in Genesis 3, right? In Genesis 3, when sin enters the world, how does Satan attack? Satan attacks, really, is God truthful? What God declared over you, Adam and Eve, in Genesis chapter 2, that you are created in the image of God, is that really true? And so doubt comes in, temptation comes in, because they don't rely on God, uh, they, they uh, commit sin, and because of that, we are feeling the effects of the fall today. But Jesus does what no man could do. Jesus uh, withstands the temptations that Satan threw at him over and over and over again with complete perfection. Praise be to God for that. And then for several months after Jesus uh, leaves the time of the, in the wilderness, uh, he's going primarily in Jerusalem, and he's, he's teaching about God's word. And he's performing miracles. Well, shortly after that, he begins to work his way back to his hometown, his hometown being that of Nazareth. And that's where we pick up uh, the story this morning in Luke chapter 4. So we're going to read the passage. It's a long passage. It's verses 16 through 30. Uh, and then we'll begin to unpack it. But before we do, let us pray and ask the Lord uh, to give us an amazing perspective based on his truth today. Lord, we come to you this morning uh, asking the Holy Spirit of God uh, to reveal your truth to us. Lord, asking the Spirit of God uh, to uh, hold our attention this morning. Uh, we have come here today, uh, some of us uh, distracted, uh, discouraged, uh, depleted in many ways, and we ask that the Holy Spirit of God would go before us. Lord, let us hear the power of your word, and Lord, through the Holy Spirit of God, let us respond in faith towards you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Luke writes, beginning in verse 16, and again, we're going to read it through so you can understand what's happening 
Uh, the scripture says, and he, the he there is Jesus, uh, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, he, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth, and they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. But we have heard you did at Capernaum. Do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his, own, in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the, uh, to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So this, verse 16 starts off telling us that, that Jesus is back in his hometown. He's in Nazareth, and he, he does what is accustomed to him. He does what uh, he consistently does. What does he do? He goes to the synagogue. Now, we have to understand the synagogue for just a moment. Uh, the temple was in Jerusalem. However, most towns had a synagogue, many synagogues, if you will. Uh, this would have been a large gathering place. And what would happen in these large gathering places is, is someone would uh, read from God's word. Uh, they would also pray, but after they read through God's word, uh, normally they would start with uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is the Shema, uh, and then they would uh, pray, and then they would read uh, another part of scripture, uh, specifically the prophets, and then whoever uh, read from God's word, the scroll, uh, they would sit down and they would begin to explain uh, what had been read. And so in this particular case, uh, uh, Jesus is in the synagogue, and uh, he's, he's getting ready to teach, and the other part that's interesting is uh, most often they would gather uh, roughly three times a week, uh, Monday, Thursday, and the Sabbath, Saturday. So on this particular case, uh, Jesus is there on that particular Saturday, uh, and he is kind of what you would call the guest teacher for the day, right? And he is given the scroll. Uh, he opens up to uh, Isaiah 61. Now, to set the context of Isaiah 61, uh, this would have been roughly 700 years uh, before uh, the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, and God had spoken to the prophet Isaiah during a time uh, in which in Israel's history, it wasn't good, right? Uh, at the time, God's people were living in rebellion. They were sinning against the Lord. And because of that uh, rebellion against the Lord, uh, God's hand of judgment or discipline had been put on them. They, they were experiencing uh, true, uh, tremendous suffering. But even in the midst of all that, God shows himself faithful he shows himself merciful. He shows himself gracious by raising up the prophet Isaiah to remind them that hope is coming. But what happens from the closing of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament is you had a little over 400 years of silence where God has uh, not spoken, right? 
And so you have people who are, uh, they, they're looking forward to the arrival of the Messiah. They're longing for the, the, the Messiah to come. And so on this particular day, Jesus gets the scroll and he begins to read from Isaiah 61. And what we find in this particular passage is who Jesus came to bring hope to. How is it that Jesus brings hope and to whom does he bring hope to? And that's what we're going to find in our passage this morning. And I pray that it speaks to you this morning. First, Jesus comes to those who have nothing to offer. He comes to those who have nothing to offer. He begins in verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So Jesus Christ, God's one and only son, the Messiah, is sent to the world. The scripture says that he is being uh, led uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? The same spirit of God who led him into the wilderness, who, who uh, protected him and provided for him, is the same spirit of God that is anointing him on this very day as he shares God's word before those who are there in the synagogue. And the scripture says that he came to proclaim, he came to evangelize, that's the word there, evangelize the good news. But notice who he's evangelizing the good news to. He's evangelizing the good news to who? The poor. Now we need to understand that the word poor here is not uh, so much in reference to those who are economically poor. It could include that for sure, but he's talking about those who are spiritually poor, those who are bankrupt apart from the work of Christ, right? And that's important. And Jesus speaks of this on the Sermon of the Mount. Uh, when you go to Matthew chapter 3, uh, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the, again, the poor in spirit are those who are spiritually bankrupt, those who have nothing to offer. And here's the beauty, that in Christ, he reverses the situation. He takes the spiritually bankrupt, and he makes them spiritually rich. And so when Jesus comes onto the scene, the way that he brings hope into the world is by providing spiritual richness to those who are spiritually poor. He does what we cannot do. And the way that we receive that is humility, right? Now that's important uh, because I, I think Jesus's words were not only to those who did not know him, but I think he's reminding us today that, that the same promises that he gives to those who, uh, that need him are the same promises that he gives to those who already know him. In other words, you and I, we can live lives forgetting that we were once, what? Spiritually poor right? Uh, in fact, when you look at uh, Revelation chapter 3, uh, when John is uh, writing to uh, the church in Laodicea, that's exactly what he's addressing. In Revelation 3 verse 17, the scripture says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And so when we think about uh, Christmas, when we think about this Advent season, when we think about Jesus coming into this world to give hope to those who are spiritually poor, we need to be reminded that, that we need Jesus every single day, right? Because if we're not careful, guess what? We are going to depend on the things of this world. I mean, think about this for a minute. Many of us, uh, we, we live in a full home, a full garage full of stuff, closets full of stuff. Some have bank accounts full of money, maybe not as much as you want, right? And yet, we're empty. Why? Because we're going to the things of the world instead of going to the one who actually makes us rich. And how much more true is that of those who do not know the Lord, right? If we're not careful, sometimes we'll envy the people in the world because of all the stuff they have, but we forget, what? That apart from Christ, they are extremely extremely empty. And so to those who are experiencing emptiness today, the story of Christmas reminds us that Jesus comes to bring hope 
to those who are poor. The second thing that we see that Jesus does is Jesus comes to those who are in bondage. Those who are in bondage to sin. Jesus goes on quoting from Isaiah 61 in the second part of verse 18. He says, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. The word liberty there means uh, to release someone, to, to set free, uh, to forgive someone of their debt. And the, the word captives talks about those who are prisoners, those who are imprisoned to their sin. And all of us, even Christians, on some degree, are captive to something, aren't we? Uh, at one time, we were uh, enslaved uh, to sin apart from Christ, Christ. But if we're not careful, guess what? We can go right back into bondage again. Right? We spent all of our time in Galatians, uh, the book of Galatians, talking about the freedom that Christ has for us, but yet we as Christians still choose to go back into the very bondage that Christ has freed us from. In other words, we need God's truth every single day. We need to be reminded that we have been liberated from our sin because of the work of Christ. Remember what Jesus says in John 8. He says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How many of us need that freedom today? How many of us need to experience the freedom that Christ has for us? In other words, aren't you tired of going back to the same bondage that Christ has freed you from? And maybe you're here, you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and all you know is captivity. All you know is imprisonment. All you know is bondage. Listen, Christ has come to set you free. Jesus says in verse 36 of John 8, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So Jesus came to deliver us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one glorious day, the very presence of sin. How is that so? Colossians 1 tells us that he, and what I love about the word he there, is it's not talking about Jesus right here. It's talking about God the Father, right? That's important. He, God the Father, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom, in other words, in Christ, we have redemption. In other words, our sin has been paid for and the forgiveness of sin in other words, our guilt has re been removed. So Jesus comes to rescue us from the destruction of eternal hell, but he's also come to rescue us and deliver us from our self-made hell. What do I mean by that? Think about eternal hell for just a minute. In Christ, we will never experience that punishment, that judgment. But those who are part of Christ, that's all you're going to receive. You're going to receive eternal damnation and hell separated from God, your creator, for eternity, right? But for the follower of Christ, guess what? God in Christ has come to set us free from our self-made hell. Now, how does that work in the Christian's life? How many of us know that we've been forgiven, know that our guilt has been uh, forgiven, that we've been covered by the grace of God, but yet we still live in the bondage of the past? We still live thinking that there's something I have to do to prove myself worthy to God. That somehow his finished work on the cross wasn't enough, or maybe it was enough at one time, but we go back to that captivity again. Maybe for some of us, it's not that. Maybe for some of us, we go back to the same sin that entraps us time and time again. And so, if you will, we're not living free. We're living captive to the very thing that Christ has set us free from. And so when we think about Christmas, we are reminded that Jesus comes to bring hope to the captive. Do you feel captive today? Maybe it's your past. Maybe it's something that's going on today. Maybe it's the fear, fear of the future. Uh, maybe uh, it's, the, have I done enough? Listen, we are reminded that Jesus comes to bring hope to the captive. Third, Jesus comes to those who are deceived, those who are deceived. So those who are living in spiritual darkness. Uh, Jesus, continuing on in Isaiah 61, says, and a recovering of sight 
uh, to the blind. Uh, and so that word blind is talking about those who are deceived. And the number one source of deception comes from who? It comes from Satan himself. That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world, talking about Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, right? So we know we live in a time of great deception, right? We see it all around. But praise be to God, that's not the end of the story. Jesus came to open the eyes of the blind. He came to give sight to those who are deceived. Jesus says in John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. Jesus comes to light up our darkness with his amazing grace. Those who were once spiritually blind, those who were walking in deception now have light of life because of Christ. Listen, everywhere around us, we see people who are living in deception. People in our schools, people in our workplaces. Yes, it hurts to say this, but people in our own homes. Walking in deception, walking in darkness. And yet, Christ has come to free them from their deception. But not only that, think about it from a Christian perspective. Is it true that you and I can be deceived today? I mean, how many Christians are banking on the government to fix our problem? And we think that's the solution. How many of us think that a bank account is going to solve our problem? Or a hobby, or a relationship, or something that we are addicted to is going to fix our problem? Listen, you cannot fix spiritual issues with physical solutions, right? The only thing that will fix it is Jesus Christ himself. And so Jesus comes to a world full of deception. And you and I, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're not void of deception, right? We, we face it every single day. And Jesus has come to give us hope, to give us hope. Fourth, Jesus comes to those who are hurting, to those who are hurting. As Jesus continues on in Isaiah 61, he says to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Uh, the word oppressed means they're uh, those who are broken, those who are crushed, those who are grieving, those who are overwhelmed, those who are defeated with circumstances within life. And so the picture here is someone who is suffering extreme sorrow. They're crushed, they're broken. Uh, the pieces of their life are shattered all around them, right? And so they're hurting. And, and the promise is what? That Jesus has come to you. And he has extended his compassion, right? I love what Jesus says in Matthew 9. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And we see, he saw the crowds. That means that in the midst of a vast number of people, Jesus sees you. He locks eyes on you and he sees your hurt. He sees your brokenness. He sees where you're discouraged. And what does he do? With great eyes of compassion. The scripture says that he comes because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So in the midst of your brokenness, my brokenness, with great compassion, Jesus enters our places of hurt. That's what Jesus chooses to do. You want to talk about hope in the world, but not just hope in the world, hope in your life is the very fact that Jesus shows great compassion to those who are knocked down, to, to those who have absolutely nowhere else to turn. Jesus says, I'm with you. I am with you. Jesus acts on our behalf. He is the advocate and the healer that all of us need. To those who are hurting because of their sin, to those who are hurting because of the effects of someone else's sin in your life, to those who are experiencing rejection, abuse, disappointment, betrayal, grief, isolation, and anything else, Jesus has come to bind up your wounds. The psalmist writes in Psalm 147, he heals the brokenhearted 
and binds up their wounds. I love the phrase there, binds up their wounds. It, it means to wrap something tightly. Again, the broken pieces of our life, because of the grace of God, are beginning to be formed back together again. And he wraps it up tightly with what? His loving compassion. Jesus comes to bring hope to those who are hurting. <clears throat> and then fifth, Jesus comes to reveal God's grace, reveal God's grace. As Jesus continues to read through Isaiah 61, our quote from Isaiah 61, uh, he talks about how he has come to reveal God's grace. Now, again, consider all that Jesus comes to reverse. He comes to reverse our status. We're no longer spiritually poor, but spiritually rich. No longer a slave to sin, but spiritually free. No longer spiritually blind, but living in the light of his truth. No longer crushed by our hurts, but even in the midst of our hurts, we're comforted by him, right? What amazing grace. And this is what Jesus says in verse 19. He says, he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, that phrase there, the year of the Lord's favor, is, uh, brings us back to the Old Testament again. It's the, the year of Jubilee. We see this in Leviticus 25. Uh, the year of Jubilee came every 50 years, right? Every 50 years, uh, you had kind of like that div divine reset button, if you will. So if you uh, owed a debt that you couldn't pay, you would have to lease your land off. You have to give your land off for a period of time. Uh, and, and what your land produced would go uh, to pay back your debt. Well, on year 50, guess what? Your debt was erased. Uh, if you were a, a servant or a slave in someone's home, guess what happened on the year of Jubilee? You were set free. You were able to go back uh, to your family. And so this is great gospel news that the year of Jubilee is here. The era of God's grace is here. It's a picture of God's amazing story of salvation, that salvation is here. Your debt can be paid for. Right? You, can no, you can be in a place where you're no longer living enslaved to your sin, living in darkness. I have come to give grace to you. But this is what's amazing about where Jesus stops. Jesus stops here with the era of grace, this time of grace, the year of grace. Well, if you go back to Isaiah 61, uh, that's not where the prophet Isaiah stops. Uh, look at Isaiah 61 verse 2. The scripture says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So that's what Jesus quoted. But Isaiah continues, and the day of visions of our God. The day of vengeance is yet to come, right? That's speaking of the final judgment. That's talking about when Jesus comes again, his second coming. And, and what he's going to do is he's going to judge the world, right? But remember, Jesus is talking to the group that gathered there in the synagogue, and he's telling them not about the vengeance of God to come. He's talking about the fact that grace is here, right? Grace is here. What happens next? Uh, verse 20 and 21 of Luke chapter 4, the scripture says, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is like the ultimate mic drop, right? Like, for, for, for centuries, people have been talking in the synagogue, right? But there's none like Jesus, right? And Jesus says, and, and today, within your hearing, what you, have said to, what you have heard today has been fulfilled by me, right? Everything that I have just spoken about, everything that the prophet Isaiah spoke about 700 years ago is all pointing to me. I am the rescuer. I am the Messiah. The scripture says that they, that they marveled, right? Why else would they not marvel? He's the anointed preacher, right? He's filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And, and the, the very fact that Jesus says that amazing statement, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is forcing a reaction. 
He is causing them to make a decision. How do they respond? The scripture says in verse 22, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is, not, is this not uh, Joseph's son? So the picture is they're having life group discussion after the sermon, right? They're sitting in their life group and they're talking about uh, the words that they just heard. The scripture says that they marveled. This doesn't mean that they believed. It just means that they were intrigued by what he said. Again, they're going to be intrigued because Jesus is filled by the Holy Spirit. They had never heard words spoken like that, right? And all they're hearing of the teaching of God's word, they never heard someone speak like Jesus. So they're intrigued. It's possible that they're also skeptic as well. That, that question there that they say, is not this Joseph's son? It's possible that there's some skepticism there. Uh, if you remember in John chapter 1, uh, when Jesus is calling his ori- original disciples, uh, remember it was Nathaniel that said this, uh, can anything good come from Nazareth, right? Can anything good come from Nazareth? So it's possible uh, that there was a sense of skepticism there. Uh, the beauty is that Jesus is far more than just Joseph's son, right? Uh, Jesus is God's one and only son. And you would think at this point, the mic drop, Jesus would stop, right? Great sermon. You know, you did well today, right? Uh, But Jesus wants to expose their heart, right? Jesus wants to get to the layer beneath the layer. He wants to expose their need for him. Remember, Jesus came to give hope, right? And so he's going to expose their heart. But how does he do this? Verse 23 and 24. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So in other words, the way that Jesus exposes their heart is he says, hey, I know you're going to tell me to do what I've done in other parts of the region. You've heard about me healing, right? You've heard about me performing miracles. And that's what you're asking me to do. If you've done it there, do it to your homeboys, right? Do it to the ones that you grew up with. But remember what Jesus said in John chapter 2 at the end, before we get right to John chapter 3 with uh, Nicodemus. Remember, in in John chapter 2, it closes with this phrase, that those marveled at the works of the Lord, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them, because why? Because he knew their heart, right? So Jesus is getting to the heart again. And so he's saying that even if I did these miracles before you right now, it would not be enough. You would still not trust in me. You would still not receive me. Why? Because your heart is far from me. And what, how does he explain it? He says that just like the prophets of old were rejected, you will reject me. And he gives us uh, two examples of when uh, God's prophets were rejected in the Old Testament. The first one is the prophet Elijah. Elijah, and we see that in verses 25 and 26. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath and the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And this, this is referring to uh, 1 Kings chapter 17. I would encourage you to, to read that at some point. And so again, what you have is God's people are living in rebellion, right? Uh, they're experiencing uh, famine. It says three and a half years of drought. Uh, not only are God's people experiencing that, but also the, the neighboring uh, territories are experiencing that as well. Uh, and, and God sends Elijah to his people uh, so that they would repent and return to the Lord, uh, but they reject the prophet. But what's amazing here is God in his grace and his mercy, he sends the prophet Elijah to where? To a widow. But not just to a widow. She's a Gentile widow, right? And Elijah speaks to her, and she's basically on her last piece of food, 
right? The provisions are gone. So she is literally poor, right? She has nothing to offer. And Elijah says, trust in my Lord, trust in my God, and you will be fulfilled. And what happens? She receives the Lord, and a miracle is performed, and she has food in the midst of great famine. So it reminds us that faith came before the miracle was given, right? Then you have the prophet Elijah, verse 27 in Luke 4. The scripture says, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. So this happens in 2 Kings uh, chapter 5. And what you have here is you have this powerful general. He's a Syrian general, right? Uh, but he's also a Gentile. But this guy is rich. He's powerful. He's been going uh, throughout the land, uh, taking over territory. Again, a, a lot of this is a result of uh, God's people rebelling against the Lord. And even though uh, God raised up the prophet Elijah to speak to his people, they rejected him. But on this particular case, there's something that happens in 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Kings chapter 5. Uh, when uh, Naaman goes and takes over a particular uh, territory, he also takes a young Jewish girl with him. And that young Jewish girl is going to serve uh, as a servant along with, uh, for his wife, right? So uh, this Jewish girl is taken uh, as a servant to help uh, uh, support uh, Naaman's wife. And so in the midst of all this power, in the midst of all these riches, you would think Naaman's doing pretty good, right? Well, Naaman has an issue. He has a disease. He has a disease called leprosy. And so here's uh, Naaman in the midst of all the worldly goods, experiencing this disease that has brought about shame, uh, isolation, all those different things. And, and that young Jewish girl says, you, you need to go to Elijah. You need to go and hear about my Lord because he's the only one that's going to heal you. So Naaman goes, he hears from Elijah. And what does Elijah tell him to do? Go to the Jordan River, submerge yourself seven times, and after the seventh time, you will be cleaned. Naaman responds in anger. Why? There's no way I'm going to stoop to that. The Jordan River is dirty. Why would I do that? I've got the, the greatest waters in the world right here, right amongst me. Why would I go do that? And so there's a sense of pride there. And he leaves, not unhealed, right? And yet his servants remind him, no, 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 we're telling you that the only one that can heal you, the only one that can bring hope to you and cleanse you is the God of Elijah. And guess what? He goes and does exactly what is told. And after the seventh time that he was uh, put into the Jordan River, guess what? He comes out clean. So you see God's amazing grace. God raises up these prophets, first and foremost, to speak to his own people. His people reject them. Does God stop? No, he sends them to the Gentiles around them. And who comes to faith? Who trusts in the Lord? Who is healed? Who is bringing, given hope? It's the Gentile window and the Gentile Syrian uh, general. And what is the response of the people? Verse 28 and 29. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. They're angry. Why? Because they're depending on themselves, right? They're living in self-reliance, self-righteousness, and Jesus is reminding them that the same way that God's people rejected the prophets of the Old Testament, you today, right now, are rejecting me. Jesus is reminding them if you want salvation, then you must confess that you are spiritually poor, a spiritual captive, spiritually blind, spiritually oppressed, and you have a desperate need for God's grace. And guess what? At this time, they were unwilling to do so. And under the shadow of the cross, his own people rejected him. 
But the beauty of the story is it doesn't stop there. Verse 30, the scripture says, but passing through their midst, he went away. So you have this mob of people that want to kill Jesus, and then Jesus does that divine Houdini, and he gets out of there, right? Reminding us that Jesus' mission isn't over yet, right? He still has work to do. Now, one day, he will be killed on a cross, but we know that he didn't stay dead on the third day. He rose from the grave, right? And guess what? It's a reminder to us that God's mission still exists today, that he has given us the Spirit of God. He has anointed us with the Spirit of God and the Word of God to go to every person, needing tremendous hope to the poor, to the prisoner, to the blind, to the hurting, in need of grace for us to minister to them. We're still in an era of grace, but that grace won't last forever. God's day of vengeance is coming. The question is, as you sit around the people that you gather with, even hard conversations, people that don't uh, think the way that you think or act the way that you act, in those difficult moments, even so much where there's great hatred and anger towards you and your beliefs and ultimately towards your God, it's a reminder to us, don't give up. Don't give up. Continue, continue to minister the gospel to them. To those of us who are here who have maybe uh, never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, what are you waiting for, right? Why do you keep rejecting Jesus? Listen, you're, you're on borrowed time, if you will. You never know when that day of vengeance is coming. Today is the day of salvation. Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 6, For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Will you see, receive Jesus Christ today as your Lord and Savior? Confess that he is Lord. Repent of your sin. Trust in the finished work of Christ. For those of us who have received Christ as our Savior, have you forgotten... That your poverty that God has brought you from? Have you forgotten that it is him and him alone that can set you free? What prison do you continue to go back to? Have you forgotten that it is Christ and Christ alone that gives sight to the blind? Where is it that you're living in deception today? Have you, been, have you forgotten that it is Christ and Christ alone that heals the wounds of the brokenhearted? Where are you going to find that healing? Are you reminded today that we live in a day of grace, but that day of grace will one day end? Let there be urgency let there be urgency to proclaim and to show the gracious hand of God, to remind people that there is hope in the Lord. Don't stop. Don't stop. Whatever your decision is today, I'll be up front. I'd love to pray with you. The altar will be open.